Hi, everyone. This Quorum episode this month will count for CME credit with ACP. Yay. We will link the exact URL in the show notes, so click on the link, answer three questions, and get CME credit. And with that, cue the intro. Medically, 1918 started off like many of the years before. The New England Journal kicked off the year with a treatise on the differential diagnosis of chronic cough, which they called pulmonary tuberculosis. From the article, quote, Someone has said that every cough of two months duration is due to tuberculosis. This is, of course, absurd. <laughs> which is amazing, and I wish we could write like that now. <laughs> if only. So it goes on to mention that cases of what they called chronic influenza bronchiectasis were wrongly diagnosed as TB. Interestingly, it's because the sputum from those patients often yielded something called influenza bacilli. Wait, influenza bacilli? Influenza is a virus, not a bacteria. Yeah, and that threw me off too. The thing is that this is the age when germ theory is just taking off, and so the modern understanding of viruses isn't really there. Uh, and it turns out that they were actually talking about the bacteria we now know as Haemophilus influenza. Which at the time they thought caused influenza, hence the name. So we reviewed a lot of old journal editions from 1918 to 1919, expecting to find sensationalized headlines about the 1918 flu pandemic. But we found these instead. For example, the health benefits of, quote, horseflesh as food. Or articles from World War I about new diagnoses like war psychoneurosis and organic lesions in shell shock. Sadly, presumably the forerunners of PTSD. We didn't find much about what we now know of as the deadliest flu pandemic in modern history. Why is that, Steve? So maybe because they're probably distracted by, I don't know, World War I? That was kind of a big deal, I hear. <laughs> well, they would eventually get there, right? By June and July, they start to report about the flu outbreaks. But do Due to limited understanding, by that point, tens of millions of people had already died. Fortunately, since then, we've gotten a lot better at preventing and treating the flu. It's no surprise that we're discussing this as the flu season starts to heat up. I see what you did there. <laughs> Cases of flu are already on the rise in the U.S. So let's try to stay ahead of things and explore the ABCs of influenza. Welcome to Mind the Gap. I'm Janine Knudsen. And I'm Steve Liu. We'd like to thank Dr. Aditya Shah, Chief Infectious Disease Fellow at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Denise McCullough, Infectious Disease Fellow at the University of Washington, for peer reviewing this episode. During today's episode, we're going to jump right into our modern thinking about influenza and how influenza prevention was developed. Namely, we'll start with a little more history and, well, how it's named. Followed by a deep dive into flu vaccines. Answering questions like, how is the vaccine actually made? And how do we select the strains that go into the vaccine every year? From there, we'll discuss how effective the vaccine really is. Including this idea of herd immunity. And lastly, we'll discuss some concerns about the vaccine, like waning immunity and vaccine contraindications. To jump back into our historical play-by-play, -play, when did they first pick up on the fact that an epidemic was underway in 1918? The flu epidemic actually hit in three distinct waves. The first occurred at the tail end of what we now call the flu season in March of 1918. Oh, so that's why by midsummer, after the first wave, there's still no mention of the epidemic in any major journal. July 1918, the Lancet first notes an ongoing epidemic of a respiratory illness. They wondered, quote, is the present widely spread epidemic one of influenza or is it something new? They were confused because they were unable to isolate that Haemophilus influenza bacilli, which at the time was thought to be the cause of influenza. They described the disease as follows, quote, the most striking symptoms are sudden onset with chills, severe headache with pain in limbs and general malaise. The maximum temperature was 103 to 104. Many cases develop a cough 
harsh in nature, with thick sputum. Sound familiar to anyone who's had the flu? Yeah, that gives me the chills just thinking about it. (laughs) First, they didn't think it was that serious. But then articles began to note that in some patients, delirium and death occurred within 24 hours. By October 1918, the second wave had already struck. The Boston Medical and Surgical Journal, now the New England Journal, noted the spread of the influenza epidemic through Boston and the East Coast. They also noted a typical death rate at the time, but rapid spread. A week later, they noted that the epidemic was, quote, still maintaining unprecedented strength and drastic measures were being taken. The New York State Health Commissioner printed posters noting that it was, quote, get this, unlawful to cough or sneeze without turning the face away from others and covering the nose or mouth with a handkerchief. How amazing is that? (laughs) The numbers are pretty sobering. At this point in October, in Massachusetts alone, over 150,000 people got sick in just two weeks and 5,000 people died. By November, they noted the epidemic was really starting to wane locally, but had spread throughout the U.S. and into the West. The reality is that this second wave of flu smoldered, catching fire in some regions for the next month. What do they do about this? Well, first they started telling people to get vaccinated. But the problem is that they still thought they were dealing with Haemophilus influenzae, or another bacteria. So they were using the wrong vaccine. And so they got pretty desperate. Still, other treatments advocated for including spraying people with formalin, giving anti-streptococcal serum to others, or get this, giving alcohol to the ill. Always a good choice. Uh, (laughs) The public remained confused. Some thought the disease was a form of malaria. The doctors were misled by culture data and debated intensely in multiple journals about whether the infection was caused by H. flu or maybe Staphylococcus. Now we know that maybe these were just secondary infections. By the time the third influenza wave finished crashing over the world, estimates ranged that between 20 and 50 million people had died. Yeah, that's pretty horrific. So why hasn't that happened again? The 1918 virus was special. It had a W-shaped mortality curve. Wait, Steve, what's a W-shaped mortality curve? Most of the time when we talk about the flu, we talk about people dying young and dying old, and that looks like a U on a graph. During these specific flu outbreaks, young adults died, giving it a peak in the middle, kind of looking like a W. Backing up, when did they realize it was a virus, not a bacteria? That would actually come two decades later, 1933. That's crazy, and it took a few more years to realize that there were multiple species of influenza. There are actually three that cause influenza in humans. I bet you didn't know that influenza C exists. More trivia for my nerdy cocktail parties. So glad that line fell on you, (laughs) not me. (laughs) Now we are going to talk about naming conventions and the creation of the influenza vaccine. Influenza A is the most common species and has caused the most pandemics in the world. Influenza B is less common and usually only causes regional epidemics. For example, last year in 2018 to 2019, 95% of all influenza viruses were flu A. But that was particularly extreme. On average, flu B makes up around 25% of cases. In addition, it also tends to vary by region. Last year, despite overall low prevalence, flu B was actually more common in certain areas of the world, specifically parts of Africa and South America. It's also still unclear whether flu B is less dangerous than flu A. It causes fewer deaths, but that could just be due to its lower prevalence, not actually lower virulence. New data coming from ICUs is calling this into question. See our show notes for more. But across the board, people recognize that flu C is the mildest and also the rarest. Okay, now that we've established which flu species we actually care about. Flu C is not clinically relevant is what we're saying. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Remind me how to name them. How do we tell the strains apart? Glad you asked. Let's go over the exciting 
interesting world of naming conventions. You start with the species, either going to be flu A or flu B, followed by where it was isolated, the strain number, and then the year. So let's give an example. The infamous 2009 pandemic strain was officially called Influenza A California 04 2009. Wait, I thought that was called H1N1. For influenza A, there's a little bit more. It's actually divided into serotypes, sorted by how our antibodies react to the hemagglutinin and the neuraminidase molecules. Ah, the H's and N's. And just as a note, influenza in B and C, we don't use these serotypes. Yeah, they don't. And as a refresher, the hemagglutinin protein allows influenza to bind and enter cells, and the neuraminidase protein helps the virion leave to infect other cells. Uh, virion, Janine? Let me use my fancy words, Steve. <laughs> Hemagglutinin is important because it's the target of the flu vaccine. That makes sense. After all, that's how viruses get into the cell. Yeah, and as it turns out, neuraminidase is also important. That's what the target of inhibitors like acetamivir, pravimir, and zanav... Eat that, Steve. <laughs> Why is this my line? Because that's what's targeted by acetamivir, paramivir, and zanamivir, the drugs that we use to treat influenza. Take 10. (laughs) But real side note, we're really fortunate that resistance to these neuraminidase inhibitors is pretty rare, although we are seeing a few cases. So for influenza A, the H's and N's matter, hence the H1N1 name of the 2009 strain. Another important fact about that strain, we keep seeing it every year. So ever since 2009, it's been a part of the flu vaccine. Its shadow grows darker. (laughs) Exactly. Its legacy lives on. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, but moving on, let's talk more about what goes into these flu vaccines. First, a little more history. The first flu vaccines were developed using ferrets. Ferrets? Ferrets! Ferrets! Turns out that of (laughs) all of the random creatures, they actually have a uniquely strong immunogenicity against viral antigens. Okay, I never would have guessed that. In fact, even to this day, ferret serum is used to test whether or not a particular vaccine will be effective. To culture the viruses, a breakthrough in the 1940s led to the use of chicken eggs. Ferrets and chickens. Who would have thought? Well, this chicken development allowed for the development of a bivalent influenza A vaccine. Now, because we're super advanced, we have trivalent and quadrivalent vaccines that cover, as you guessed, three and four strains. Okay, the trivalent vaccines cover two major flu A viruses, the H1N1-like virus and a common H3N2 virus, along with one flu B virus. The quadrivalent vaccine adds an additional flu B strain. But is it better? Well... In some ways, it doesn't matter because 80% of vaccines on the market are quadrivalent. <laughs> okay. But what do the studies say? Does that extra flu B strain really help us, especially if it's not that common? Some studies do suggest they're more effective, but that's largely based off of projected data. Okay. Well, for now, the guidelines from the CDC still say that you can get either vaccine. And as long as you've gotten one of them, you don't need to go the extra mile just to get a quadrivalent one. Okay. So we've established trivalent, quadrivalent. Just get the vaccine. Doesn't really matter. So let's answer another important question. How do we decide what strains of the flu go into it every year? Well, for starters, it's important to note that unlike other vaccines like hepatitis B or measles, we need a new flu vaccine every year. And that's because the virus has a high rate of mutation. Because of things like antigenic drift and shift, we're generally exposed to new viral strains every year. 
As a quick reminder, drifts are small changes that occur over time. Shifts are big changes that usually happen when an infection has an animal reservoir, like the H1N1 swine flu epidemic. The WHO Global Influenza Surveillance and Response System, or GISRIS, <laughs> uses 142 influenza centers to monitor shifting influenza trends around the world. And at the end of every flu season, the WHO publishes a recommendation for the following year's vaccine. And fun fact, this happens every six months, not a year, because the flu seasons are both in the northern and southern hemisphere. For world travelers, you actually have to get oh a Carl southern... Sagan. <laughs> you do have to get a southern flu vaccine. Can oh, really? That? Yeah. No, I didn't know that. Well, you don't have to, but if you want it to exists, get vaccinated yeah. for it, huh? it's different. It's also actually only finalized in March, at least in the U.S. That's when the annual Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee meets. This year was the 155th meeting. And so what they're trying to actively figure out is which viruses can help generate an immune response against the majority of circulating viruses. Yay. Okay, so we have our flu strain recommendations. From there, it still takes months to make the vaccine. They're going to release all of those trivalent and quadrivalent vaccines on the market. And remember, you can get either one as long as you get the vaccine. So who can't get the vaccine, Janine? From the WHO, I quote, there are no contraindications to the use of these vaccines in age groups greater than six months. So to start, the only kind of contraindication is anaphylaxis. But you can still get it as long as you're getting monitored. Okay, that said, not all brands are approved for younger children. And if it's your child's first go-around with the flu vaccine, the CDC recommends two doses in their first season. Remember that the vaccine usually takes about two weeks to kick in. So if you're listening to this now and you haven't gotten it, go get it. Now's your time. <laughs> okay, now we recognize that we've mentioned a few different subtypes of vaccines. So, so what are the different forms of the vaccine that we have? Manufacturers produce inactivated viral products one of three ways, via chicken eggs, mammalian cells, or recombinant vaccines. Oh, so that's why when I go to order my flu vaccine in the EHR, I have so many options to choose from. Fluzone, Flucilvax, Flubach. Am I even saying those correctly? Why not? <laughs> in all cases, the general idea is the same. We infect a cell, mostly egg cells, with a candidate virus, and then the virus replicates. Then everything is killed to inactivate it, and the hemagglutinin antigen is purified from the inactivated virus's antigen soup and made into a vaccine. So gross. So <laughs> chicken eggs were the original way to make the vaccine, but there is a downside. And it's not the egg allergy. The CDC guidelines state that anyone can get the egg-based vaccine because the rates of anaphylaxis are so super low. 1.31 in a million. Yeah, they just advise caution in patients with severe egg allergy. And we're talking anaphylaxis here, not hives. Those folks should get monitored when they get the vaccine. Okay, so the main issue now with the egg-based vaccines is actually that it relies on a good egg supply. Which may not be available in the case of pandemics when millions, if not billions, of vaccines are needed quickly. That's why scientists have come up with new ways to make the vaccine, like mammalian cells and recombinant flu vaccine. And if you care, the brand names for those are Flusol, Vax, and Flubox. <laughs> so mammalian cells are intuitive, but what's the recombinant virus method? For that, Janine, we use insect cells. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> the hemagglutinin gene from the flu virus is mixed into a different virus, which will grow well in insect cells. That sounds like such crazy science fiction. I mean, isn't that how Frankenstein was created? Stop spreading fear. You will only probably become Frankenstein if you get one of these. <laughs> Inside of the insect cells, just like eggs and other mammalian cells, the virus replicates and makes a bunch of more hemagglutinin, providing substrate for the vaccine. 
For the chicken fans out there, the recombinant flu vaccine definitely does not involve any chickens. Exactly. <laughs> but it is bug juice. In a manner of speaking. Remember, these are insect cells, not actual insects. So we've gone over how to make the vaccine. Manufacturers use these methods to make something to the tune of 170 million vaccines for the United States every year. And most of them are still made using the egg method. So many scrambled eggs lost. (laughs) The great chicken egg massacre. (laughs) For a good cause, I guess. But actually, wait a minute. That doesn't seem like enough. Aren't there over 300 million people in the United States alone? Unfortunately, not everyone gets vaccinated. But remember, technically, not everyone has to. Remember... Herd immunity. Oh, right, right, right. So the general idea is if enough people are vaccinated, the flu is less likely to spread. Is that right? Well, that's a little too simplistic. Our listeners can handle the details, Steve. Herd immunity is calculated using a simple formula that compares how transmissible the infection is to how effective the vaccine is. Some people are more likely to transmit the infection, like soldiers packed into tight quarters in 1918 or healthcare workers today. We're kind of like a horrible gold mine for flu to spread. <laughs> so that's transmission. The second part of herd immunity is vaccine effectiveness. And to answer that, we have to figure out, well, how good are we at predicting what strains to put into the flu vaccine every year? To quote Dr. Nancy J. Cox, formerly of the WHO and the CDC, What I would say is that the methods that have been developed thus far can predict the past. They have not been able to predict the future. Keep that in mind when we talk about how good or bad the vaccine is every year. So what we care about is not vaccine efficacy, like how something performs in the lab under ideal circumstances, but vaccine effectiveness, how it performs in the real world. To measure this, the CDC looks at how many people who got the vaccine also got the flu. But to make it easy on us, they don't actually require flu cases to be confirmed with a test like a viral swab. It's okay for people to just have influenza-like illness. They have criteria like fever, respiratory symptoms, stuff like that. So some cases could actually be caused by other viruses, which obviously the flu vaccine doesn't protect against. Which means that this measure of effectiveness probably underestimates how well the flu vaccine works. But effectiveness has not always been great. In 2004 to 2005, it was as low as 10%. Yikes. Yeah. So, but in 2010, it was actually as high as 60%. But generally, the range of effectiveness falls into the mid-40s. That said, things might get a little murkier in certain populations. For example, for a long time, there's been a concern about waning immunity in the elderly. In general, flu immunity may wane even within one season, like after seven to eight months. But that may go faster in the elderly. From the VRB PAC meeting, those are the folks that select the flu vaccine in the U.S., there is a growing body of literature on waning immunity that may be more pronounced among older adults than among younger people. It may be more common with H3s than with H1s. And while experts agree that this probably happens, they don't agree on what to do about it. Some folks have advocated for the high-dose influenza vaccine. But to be clear, there's a study from 2014 published in the New England Journal showing that there may be an improvement in serological markers of immunity. But the high-dose vaccine's impact on actual clinical outcomes, like visits to the ED, hospitalizations, and pneumonia, was minimal. A Lancet study from 2017 was similar and showed very slight improvement in hospitalization rates. Well, one thing we can all get behind is something the NIH is working on, a universal flu vaccine that immunizes against every strain of the flu and doesn't need to be repeated every year. A flu vaccine that protects you for life? This sounds like science fiction again. Just like those zombie insect cells. You know, it is based on sound science and worth reading about on the NIH website. Uh, What does this mean, Steve? We may never see a flu pandemic again? Well, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Let's save the rest of the fun for our next episode. We'll be talking about flu diagnosis and treatment. Okay, 
So to wrap up for today, let's cover our key points. First, we went over the history of the flu and how they used to think about it, like maybe that it was caused by Haemophilus influenza, hence the name. Next, we went over flu nomenclature, including the three main flu species, A, B, and C, and the H and N serotypes that are specific to the flu A virus. Then we hopped right over to vaccines, which target the hemagglutinin protein on the outside of the flu virus that allows it to enter the cells. Compare that to the neuraminidase protein that helps it leave cells to attack new ones. That's what drugs that are used to treat the flu infection target. Whoa, whoa, Janine. Let's save that for next time. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Whoa. The inactivated flu vaccine can be created one of three ways. The age-old chicken-egg culture way, the newer mammalian cell culture way, and the space-age recombinant method of (laughs) using insect cells. And it's important to note that now the CDC says that all are safe for people to use, even if they have an egg allergy. Don't forget that there's a live flu vaccine too, only available in nasal spray, and that should not be used in pregnant or immunocompromised patients. But I guess it's for folks that really don't like shots. We also reviewed that each flu vaccine contains three to four strains, but most in the U.S. are now quadrivalent. The combo of strains in the vaccine changes mostly every year because the flu mutates quickly enough through antigenic drift and shift. And the strains are recommended by the WHO and a U.S. group called the VRBPAC, based on trends they see from epidemiology and genetic data. Vaccine effectiveness is measured retrospectively. Usually it sits around 40%, which is lower than its efficacy based on how they measure it. But thanks to herd immunity, as long as a majority of people get the vaccine, we'll generally be okay. Except for the elderly and young children, because of things like waning immunity and, I guess, lack of immunity over the course of the flu season. We haven't quite figured out what to do for those folks yet. And finally, at some point, hopefully in our lifetimes, they'll come up with a universal flu vaccine, so all this yearly vaccination business won't be necessary. So who's ready for the next episode? (laughs) So we know that we went kind of quickly through the data... And arguably not as in-depth as some might like. So, as always, we want to encourage you to check out the data, too. Take a look at the links below the podcast at coreimpodcast.com. So you can take the time to judge the data for yourself and sound smart on rounds. Super smart. Super smart. (laughs) After all, this is a podcast talking about those gaps in our knowledge. So if you really want to feel confident on the data, take the time to pick it apart yourself. And if there are any other topics you'd like to hear discussed, please let us know. I'm Steve Liu. And I'm Janine Knudsen. And remember, mind the gap. Thanks for listening. Janine and I are assistant professors in the Department of General Internal Medicine at NYU. Opinions in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of NYU or other affiliated institutions. Please don't use this podcast for medical advice, but instead consult with your healthcare provider. Medically, 1918 started off like many of the years before it. The New England... (laughs) What are you saying, Kai? Uh, It's so much better than a siren. Sorry. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. 
We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.